Its third largest city just might be tops for enjoying the pleasures of France. We're talking about Lyon. You're in a big town, it's very active, there's a lot of people around, but you still feel like a little village. You still feel like the French countryside. It's especially famous for a big festival of light that happens every year around uh, December 8. The new head of Sojourners explores a vision for building what he calls a beloved community in America. It starts with addressing what divides us. There's ways in which religion and churches have contributed to a lot of the divisions in our society. And an Icelandic journalist reminds us how his tiny nation has pushed well above its weight to influence the modern world for the better. I think Iceland, in a way, has a lot of power on the world stage. People look to it and ask, how did you do it? The influence of Iceland, living well in Lyon, and forging a better America. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. It was a time when weather emergencies and social unrest created a lot of disappointment. So, the people of Lyon in France placed lighted candles in their windows as a symbol of coming together. Ever since 1852, the Festival of Light on December 8th has become one of France's prized celebrations. In a minute, guides from France tell us what they like best about Lyon. Also, the president of the nonprofit organization Sojourners shares his vision for building a more perfect union in America. And a journalist from Iceland reminds us how his small island has long been a global force for good. That's in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Lyon likes to call itself France's second city of culture. It's a favorite destination within France and famous as the heart of French cuisine. And if Paris gets to be too much for you, Lyon might be just the thing. Lyon is Virginie Morier's hometown, and she leads tours around her hometown. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us why we should include Lyon on our next trip to France. And she's joined by French tour guide Patrick Vidal to give us another angle on this great city in France. Patrick and Virginie, thank you for joining. Bonjour, Bonjour Rick. Rick. So, Virginie, your hometown is, uh, they say, the second city of culture in France. Is that meaning Marseille is bigger, but there's more culture in Lyon? Exactly. It's, uh, Lyon It's the third uh, biggest city of France. However, I would even call it the capital of France. Now that more than Paris. More than Paris. Well, you and could live in either place. What's so good about Lyon? Uh, it offers everything that a big city, you want to have in a big city, like the museum, the, the entertainment, the restaurant, the bars, cafe, and so on. But it has a more nature side to it. It's closer to the environment. We have parks uh-huh. and it's much smaller. Public transportation is nothing like Paris. It's mm-hmm. super easy to use the metro. And we have two rivers in Lyon, unlike Paris, which only has one. <laughs> and I should say we actually have three rivers. We have the Saône and the Rhône. But we said that Lyon has a third river, which is the Beaujolais. The Beaujolais, oh, the Beaujolais wine. Okay. And, and Lyon has some, I understand there's some, uh, they know how to cook in Lyon. Patrick, what's the cuisine scene in Lyon? Oh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing scene. I mean, it's a part of the main restaurant you find down there called the Bouchon, B-O-U-C-H-O-N. And those Bouchons are, are little restaurants which were used to be workers' restaurants, for very, very much aimed to the people working with no much money. 
Et un, et un menu standard, very, very down to the down to earth, and very inexpensive. So and no pretense and not no so pretense, expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But quality, small, innovative. You know, I think that's what you can you find a lot in Lyon compared to Paris is the kind of much much more down to earth. I like kind that. Of idea. Now you, I think you you put your finger on why I am so charmed by Lyon. It's it's got the culture, but it doesn't have the pretense that comes in Paris. It's been out of the... I mean, as a tour guide, I've started to do tours in Lyon 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to drive my bus down there. Mm-hmm. And there was a bus parking with three spots on it. And I've always found some spot to park. So there was no, there was no tourism. But why? Uh, That's very strange because... Uh, only French. Only, only, the French, French. only the French would come to visit Lyon. It is seen for many North American tourists. It's seen as, you know, you go visit Paris, maybe Burgundy because it's famous for its wine. And then you go south to Provence. That's it, and so yeah. you kind of forget Lyon. Yeah. And so that's why maybe it has retained more an authentic feel that you haven't lost anywhere else. But here you have less foreigners. So you got the, you got the high culture. You got the great cuisine. You've got better prices. Exactly. And uh, probably the American tourist is, is welcome there. I mean, it's, oh, you, completely. you get a friendly welcome. Mm-hmm. I love this idea of the Bouchon Lyonnaise, right? The, the little restaurants that are quintessential Lyonnaise. And of course, uh, Paul Bocuse was a, a great chef from yes. Lyon. We have to balance the Bouchon, so down-to-earth food, yeah. with the fact that Lyon is the second city in France with the most restaurants per inhabitants. One restaurant for 300 inhabitants. And, uh, and some of them have Michelin stars. Exactly. Many of them are Michelin star. And Paul Bocuse, uh, who has had the record of 50 years having three Michelin stars. Whoa. Let's talk about the sites here. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a lot of history, so it goes back to Roman. Uh, tell me about the Roman uh, sites. Lyon at the time was called Luc de Nume, and it's actually where I mentioned earlier that it should be the capital of France because it was the capital of the Gallo-Roman world. So after the conquest uh, by Caesar of what was then called Gaul, uh-huh. uh, it was established as the oh, capital. Okay. So if you're going to conquer the proto-French people, the Gauls... Mm-hmm. then the capital of that was civilization it? would be Lyon. So there's a museum of Gallo-Roman history in Lyon. And then, Patrick, there's a beautiful medieval, what is the Quarter Saint-Jean? Saint-Jean, yeah, with the cathedral Saint-Jean and all the area around. In fact, the between the uh, the Renaissance quarter and the uh, medieval quarter, it's the largest, largest historic uh, um, quarter in Europe after Venice. And I remember the little alleyways. The Traboule. What is the name again? The Traboule. T-R-A-B-O-U-L-E-S. Yeah. And you, you lose yourself in one and you pop out on the other side. Those go back to, what is the story? They, of were, made, they were made to, for the silk workers to carry the rolls of silk from one place to another, one protected, not to get them outside in the, uh, in the open air. And if you wanted to learn about that, I suppose there's a fabric museum. There's a silk fa- factory, yes, still working, still doing some uh, maintenance and, and work for big museums in France or Versailles. Or the White House, Versailles. Yeah. And Americans don't even understand. They can't find it on the map, Lyon. L-Y-O-N. It's uh, near the Alps in the east of France. And this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patrick Vidal and Virginie Moret about the second city, if you calculate the cultural value of France, and if you don't have anybody from Marseille at the table, (laughs) Lyon. One thing I was very struck by when I was in Lyon was the uh, Lumiere, about the cinema, and you can go there. Have you been to this museum? Yes, uh, it's actually the house where the the brother Lumiere uh, lived, and they're at the factory behind the house, so quite a a bourgeois house, and uh, this is where they actually assembled the first movie. The history of cinema is... Lyon. Right, starting there mm-hmm. in Lyon. 
And during the World War II, this was Lyon was sort of the capital of the French resistance. It was named capital of the French resistance by uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, we are close to a, a region which we call the Vercors, which is uh, middle-range mountains where the resistance fighter would okay. hide. So and they didn't hide in Lyon, but it was their springboard into the hills. And this is from Lyon that they would organize the resistance with a famous uh, Jean Moulin, who was sent by Charles de Gaulle to organize the resistance from within France. And uh, unfortunately, it's also known because of close Barbie, who was nicknamed oh. the Butcher of Lyon, who was uh, so jailed there Klaus and then processed. Barbie was the Gestapo leader there? Or, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And today, his former uh, headquarters has been turned into the Resistance Museum. Exactly. Well, that's a good idea. Which is a very interesting museum on the deportation and the resistance. Powerful. Now, Patrick, when you're in Lyon, you can balance that high cultural experience with a little trip into the mountains nearby. Yeah, you're, you're pretty close to Chamonix and uh-huh. to all the mountains around, to the ski resorts and... Uh, and going up to Chamonix to the Aiguille du Midi is, is a good uh, day trip from Lyon. Easy to do. I mean, you could do by train. If you've got a car, you can drive up there. It's a couple of hours. So if um, you want to... Annecy is on, on your way up there as well with the big lake of Annecy. Annecy? Yeah. So uh, you've got plenty, plenty of things to do around. I noticed the Alpine Fun was cheaper in France than it was in Switzerland also. Remember, every, the mountains are just as Everything beautiful. is cheaper in France than it is in Switzerland. <laughs> Switzerland's double the cost to yes. ride the lifts yeah. and so on. Yeah. And in Switzerland, you, you couldn't go up one lift and hike over and go down the lift uh, without buying two separate tickets. But in France, I found they were more generous. And if you buy a round-trip ticket, you can hike over there and take it down. Do as much as you want. You can play around, yeah. <laughs> and then you can eat without going broke in France. You can you can go enjoy the Alps and still have great French cuisine oh, at, yeah. I mean, at it's wonderful the, prices. I mean, the, the big specialty of the Alps is... Uh, anything done with melted cheese because the <laughs> cheese was a big specialty of the area. I mean, uh, you couldn't grow much around there, so the, you had cows. So uh, melted cheese in a lot of ways, fondues, tartiflette, and raclette were out the specialty of the area. And they're, they're not very expensive. They're very and, easy and of to. course, now France has invested so heavily in its infrastructure that if you are in Paris and you want to enjoy the second city of culture, hop on the TGV. It's two hours away. Two from hours Paris away. to Lyon. Mm-hmm. There's probably yeah. hourly connections. Yeah, yes. central Paris to central Lyon, two hours. Our guides to Lyon are Virginie Moret and Patrick Vidal. Virginie runs a guest house and private tours from her home base just north of Lyon. Patrick has lived in nearly every corner of France and is renovating a 17th century stone house in Brittany. There's web links to our guests each week at ricksteves.com slash radio. One thing I really was impressed in Lyon was the floodlighting. I mean, France in general. This is something travelers don't often appreciate, but Things are beautifully lit after dark. And in France, in Paris, I even have a sort of a a do-it-yourself Uber ride that I recommend going around the town just to enjoy all the floodlighting. I think Lyon has sort of wrote the book on great floodlighting. Except that you can do it on foot because it's a much smaller city, That's so right. it's uh, <laughs> very enjoyable. And we have little boats that you can, you know, go on all to, also on the river to enjoy the light. Uh, it's especially famous for a big festival of light that happens every year around uh, December 8, the weekend of December 8. A festival it, of light. La Fête des Lumières. Uh, it's huge. It attracts about 2 million visitors every year, especially from, you know, Whoa. people from countries around, you know, Switzerland, Italy, uh, Belgium. And uh, they have amazing show. For example, one of the best ones is on the cathedral, where you have music with the light show. So that's during a four-day uh, during the year. But the rest of the year, the bridges are lit. Some of the buildings are lit. Lyon also has amazing frescoes, trompe l'oeil. So it's famous for wall, you know, painted walls. Mm-hmm. And some of them are lit also at night. 
people are always looking for a place that's, quote, undiscovered or not overrun with tourists. And especially in this day and age when you have emerging economies with, with a million or a hundred million people in India and in China that have enough money to go to Europe now, they're all going straight for the Eiffel Tower. Let's wrap things up, uh, Patrick and uh, Virginie, just with, with a moment, uh, with floodlighting and great cuisine. Give me a, a beautiful evening moment. If you and I were there right now, what would we do in the evening? But to me, the, the feeling you've got in Lyon is that what you don't have in Paris anymore is the, uh, you're in a big town, it's very active, there's a lot of people around, but you still feel like a little village. You still feel like uh, like the French countryside pretty easily because there are little restaurants as we were talking about. So the, you go the to Bouchon. one of the Bouchon, B O U C H O N. You yeah. go to a Bouchon, you have a great meal, and uh, and then you take a nice walk, seeing uh, over the, the lights around. I'll never forget standing on the bridge, just yep. enjoying the cityscape. Virginie. And for me, it has to be linked to food and drink always. So what are and, we going to uh, eat? So in the summertime, I would say at night, you go on the side of the Saône River. They have little buvettes, so they are outside bars. Mm-hmm. And you have a beautiful view of the back of the Cathedral of Lyon on the other side of the river. And then you take that same spot if you travel in the wintertime. And you go on a Sunday, Saturday or Sunday morning, and you order oysters with your pool, which is typical bottle of uh, wine that we have only in Lyon, nowhere else in France, and you enjoy your white wine with your oyster with the same view of the cathedral. Oh, I and it's love magic. It. And it's beautifully lit. Virginie Moret and Patrick Vidal, merci bien. Avec merci. Plaisir. Bon voyage. Merci. Merci. We'll explore the surprising influence of Iceland in a bit. But first, the new head of the progressive religious organization Sojourners shares his vision for healing America. It's Travel with Rick Steves. With all the difficult issues we Americans have had to face in the past few years, many of us are searching for a way America can overcome the divisiveness that plagues our nation. Adam Russell Taylor has been a leader in that zone where Christian America meets progressive political activism. A liberal Christian, he's been inspired by how Dr. Martin Luther King used his religious faith to inform his calls for social justice. Today, Adam leads Sojourners. It's a nonprofit advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., that I've been a fan of for years. It works on issues of justice among Christian denominations and within our society in general. Adam's just written a book to describe his vision for how we bridge the political divide in America and become the kind of society I think we really want to be, one community at a time. His book is called A More Perfect Union, a new vision for building the beloved community. Adam, thanks for being with us. It's an honor to be with you, Rick. Adam, you're the new president of Sojourners, and you joined uh, or you took that position just in time for its 50th anniversary. Tell us, what is Sojourners, just briefly, so we know where you're coming from. Yeah, Sojourners is a Christian ecumenical organization, so we work with and engage Catholics and mainland Protestants and evangelicals and black church and beyond. And we've had a mission of trying to inspire and equip Christians to put their faith into action for social justice and peace. And we've got a magazine. We have a digital publication you can learn more about at soja.net. And we also do a lot of advocacy and campaigning on issues like immigration and poverty Mm -hmm. and criminal justice. So you're basically saying it's okay for Christians to live out their faith in the political realm? Not just okay. I think it's an essential (laughs) part of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. Now, we know that America is divided politically. What's your take on how the Christian church within America is divided also? Is that just a parallel thing, or, or how does that intersect? It's a great question. I mean, I think some of the deep, and I call it toxic, divisions in our politics has seeped into the church. But we also know that the church has been divided for a long time. 
divided over the issue of race, to be honest. I mean, if you kind of think about the ways in which Christianity was a misused and abused to justify slavery, and then later Jim Crow segregation and beyond. And also theologically between those that, you know, lean more progressive in their theology and those who are more conservative. I really see the church at its best as being the conscience of the state. These are using the words of Dr. Martha King, rather than being the master or the servant of the state. And at our core, we should be bridge builders. We should be models of the radical love of Christ. And I think if we focused more on that, we could be a real balm, if you will, in the midst of our very broken and polarized politics. Hmm. Yeah, that, that seems nice. But it also seems like Christian denominations have actually contributed to the division in our society at the same time, in reality. No question. No question. And that continues up and through today. I mean, I think if you look at the origins of the religious right movement, which is kind of the more conservative Christian movement in this country, it was founded as a movement in lockstep with political operatives in the Republican Party who literally wanted to create a political force in response to the desegregation of Christian colleges and Christian schools. Hmm. Now, later, it expanded its agenda to include abortion and other issues. But there's there's ways in which religion and you know churches have contributed to a lot of the divisions in, in our society. Earlier, you said Sojourners is an ecumenical organization. It's interesting, if I understand it correctly, there's interfaith and there's ecumenical. Interfaith means Christians, Muslims, Jews, and so on. Uh, but ecumenical means different denominations within Christianity. And there's a lot of them across the whole political spectrum and in a lot of other ways. So is part of the challenge of Sojourners to work within this big umbrella of different Christian denominations and find common ground? That is. And we have been doing that for pretty much our entire history. That being said, though, we work in coalition and in partnership with a lot of other faith traditions. Uh, we have a partnership that's focused on trying to get faith traditions to address the COVID crisis. It's called FACE uh, for Vaccines. Uh, we've worked in lots of coalitions around immigration and poverty. So we definitely work in a multi-faith way. And increasingly, we reach a lot of people that are spiritual but not religious, per se. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Adam Russell Taylor was named president of Sojourners in time to celebrate their 50th anniversary this year. We're checking in with him today on Travel with Rick Steves about the idea of the beloved community that he discusses in his new book, A More Perfect Union. His organization's website is sojo.net. That's S-O-J-O. It includes articles Adam has written on how the pandemic has changed us, a South African antidote to individualism, and how teaching anti-racism won't shame kids but empower them. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Rev. Adam Taylor. Adam, it's, it's interesting that you're inspired by the great Christian leader Martin Luther King Jr.'s beloved community. And his beloved community really is the opposite of all of this division. Uh, this beloved community of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s was what sort of animated and galvanized the civil rights movement back in the 50s and 60s, and back then provided a hopeful way forward. So in your ideas and in your book, you're taking this beloved community and employing it today? What, what is the beloved community? Yeah, I, I really make the argument in this book that we desperately need a unifying, hopeful, moral vision for this country, both about who we want to be, but also where we're going. And as you said, the beloved community was like the North Star vision of the civil rights movement. 
After the Montgomery bus boycott victory, Dr. King said that the end goal is redemption. The end goal is reconciliation. The end goal is the beloved community. In my kind of reimagined, recast definition of the beloved community for the 21st century, for our current moment, is it's building a society, a community, a nation where everyone is valued, everyone is respected, that our diversity is seen as a strength and not a weakness, and where everyone can thrive. And then I have a companion definition, which is a little bit more of a policy definition, which is building a society in which neither punishment nor privilege is viciously tied to race, to ethnicity, to ableness, to gender, to sexual orientation, to the many things that define us. So this is sort of establishing rules for the political arena of all of this discussion, fundamental things. Uh, You know, we're all of equal worth. Men and women are equal. Uh, People should be able to have any religion they want or people of all races should be equal? Is that kind of a fundamental need we have to have in order for us to find common ground? Yeah. And that's why I think the beloved community is such a powerful moral vision because it taps into our deepest civic values as well as our religious ones. Hmm. So it's not just a religious vision. This is something that should resonate with those who believe in the constitution of our country of liberty and justice for all. Now we know that We have woefully fallen short of the promises and the creed of America, but we shouldn't abandon it. We should try to live into it and ultimately achieve it. You know, it's such a worthy goal, and it it sounds so nice, but I keep thinking, is it realistic? i got to say I'm a bit skeptical, but in your book, you talk about how you traveled around the United States and were inspired, finding examples of how this beloved community is already being built. In your travels around the United States, Adam, What are a couple of courageous and creative glimpses of the beloved community that gave you hope? Yeah. So in New Orleans, there's an amazing initiative that is focused on building an equitable city in New Orleans. It's a campaign for equity is the name of it, or CINO. And a friend of mine named Sean Barney is a businessman. He's someone that's involved in real estate, but he realized that so many of the politicians, but also the business community really didn't understand the racialized history of New Orleans itself and the degree to which so much capital and assets is tied to the racial history of New Orleans. And so they created a pretty rigorous curriculum where they brought business leaders together for kind of a deep dive into understanding the history of New Orleans and really understanding through that lens of racial equity. And through that, they've been able to build a greater commitment to pursuing equity within New Orleans. And he's actually now mounting a campaign to try to create a competition between cities and to kind of outcompete each other to become the most equitable city in America. So that's really inspiring. Another quick one is a little bit more close to home. A friend of mine, actually, from graduate school named Laura Phelan, started an organization called Kindred, which is working in public schools all across the city of D.C. in order to unite parents from very different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds to build really deep relationships with each other. And through those relationships, they end up realizing that their kids face radically different opportunities and and kind of resources in order to achieve their best potential. And so through this process, they end up working together to create a much more equitable school system and try to close the achievement gap in the city. You know, that if you can just identify these fundamental commonalities that we have, and then if you can travel around the country and find examples that give us hope and you run it up the flagpole like you're doing in your book, A More Perfect Union, 
it's hugely inspirational. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking even about, Nor- you know, Ireland had a, the troubles, a ripping that society apart. And in the North, they found ways to create a beloved community by bringing young people together. I mean, they, on both sides, they were tired of blowing each other up. And they realized we've got to get these kids together so they can understand and empathize with each other. And that contributed to the peace that Ireland has today. Yeah, one of the things I, I say in the book is that we probably haven't been this polarized since the 1960s. And it's become a more toxic version because not only do we no longer, we kind of dislike and distrust each other from the other political persuasion, yeah. but polling shows that we now hate and have contempt for the people of the other political persuasion. Oh. And I think the only way to overcome that is through building relationships, which can lead to empathy and listening and understanding. It's not going to solve everything. But it's a lot harder to have contempt for someone that you are in relationship with. So what's another example of hope that you found in the United States as you've traveled around? Yeah, I mean, there's some amazing work happening in California. There's an organization called Pico California, which is part of the Faith in Action Network that has created a program called Belong that is also building these really strong relationships across socioeconomic and racial differences in different parts of California. And they are identifying what are some of their shared aspirations and hopes for their community, and then helping to build a greater sense of agency and power to help achieve those goals. I've been inspired by that. There's a, a reverend in Southeast DC named Reverend Delante Golston, who leads a church that is appropriately called Peace Fellowship. And he's been leading these peace walks with clergy from very different backgrounds. who are really trying to provide a witness for peace in one of the most struggling and uh, violence-wracked parts of our city. And just having clergy with other allies interact with young people and really try to push back against some of the, the violence that we've seen has made a really big difference. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Adam Russell Taylor. He's the president of Sojourners. And Adam's written a book called A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. As a mainline Christian, I'm really inspired by the enthusiasm and and the love and the activism in the evangelical community, but I'm also hopeful that it can be redirected a little bit into a more progressive kind of direction to deal with the problems confronting us today. Is that a realistic hope? I think there definitely is hope there. I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to rehabilitate evangelicalism. I think we need to refocus it around the evangel, which literally is the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is at the heart of evangelism. It's spreading the good news, the love of Christ. Unfortunately, it's become an overly politicized and partisanized movement. And so now most people associate evangelicalism with the Republican Party, with President Trump increasingly. And I think that's really dangerous because we should not be conflating a religious movement, a Christian movement with one particular political party or one particular leader. And so, you know, it's really important that we really try to get back to the roots of evangelicalism, get back Mm -hmm. to people like William Wilberforce, who was an evangelical, or Charles Finney, who was evangelical, who literally were against the slave trade in, in Great Britain and the United States, and helped to organize evangelical Christians in order to end and abolish slavery. Well, Adam, that kind of gets back to your chapter about the third reconstruction. You know, of course, the first would be post-Civil War reconstruction, and then in the 1950s and 60s, we got the Civil Rights Movement. Those would be the first two reconstructions. And then today, I would imagine the third one is dealing with systemic racism in our country. That's exactly right. I mean, I think the racial awakening summer that we saw after the horrific 
killing of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd sparked some of the biggest protests in American history. I, I think it actually broke records in terms of the number of Americans that joined peaceful protests all around the country to try to address this crisis in police violence directed at Black men in particular, but also Black women and other people of color. The, the challenge is that while certainly a lot of people got involved, and I think it did change many hearts and minds, it didn't lead to significant policy change, a structural change. And unfortunately, among a lot of white evangelicals in particular, their opinions about policing and problems in policing really didn't change at all. Hmm. And so we have to keep pushing. We have to keep working. Hmm. And a kind of third reconstruction isn't a given. It's not inevitable. It requires our diligence and our vigilance to make it happen. Adam Russell Taylor is president of the nonprofit organization Sojourners. Adam has written A More Perfect Union to call for a new public narrative, one that can unite Americans around common values we aspire to. We have links to his work at ricksteves.com radio. Adam, in the epilogue of your book, you wrote about how, like Martin Luther King Jr., you went to Jamaica for a break from the demands of leading a movement. Uh, you went there for restoration and to write. And uh, is there something about the Jamaican sun or something that just breathes new life into dry bones? There certainly is. I, I consider myself an honorary Jamaican. My wife grew up in Montego Bay and is from Jamaica, so I have family there. And King went there because he was burnt out. This was only about a year or so before his horrific assassination. When I went there, I was also pretty discouraged about just how divided and polarized our society had become. I was worried about the ways in which a kind of new version of racism and xenophobia had become quite strong within many parts of the country and the church. And so in the midst of some of that anguish, I was able to write big sections of this book, and there's no question mm. that the Jamaican sun helped to uh, enliven that. Well, I'm glad you got to go to Jamaica, and I'm also glad you dropped into Seattle. I enjoyed a beautiful afternoon with your lovely wife and your, your two sons on my deck this last summer. In your book, you talked about your sons and how you wrote them a letter to keep our contemporary challenges in perspective. What was your message to your sons then, and... I guess that could be a message to all of us if, if we were all working together. Yeah, I actually wrote that letter just a couple months before the 2020 election. So I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And I wrote it from a rock. I call it my thinking rock in Bellingham, Washington, which is where I was born and grew up. And on that rock, I reflected on what do I, what I want to say to them, regardless of who won. So whether Trump got a second term or Biden got his first term in the 2020 election, I want to impress upon my sons that, yes, this country has been deeply divided from its very inception, but the ideals of America are worth cherishing and are ultimately worth fighting to realize, and that those ideals are also interwoven into the ideals of our Christian faith, and that ultimately I believe that his generation or their generation, both my sons, are going to be the ones that ultimately enable us to realize a truly inclusive multiracial democracy. And I know that you know puts a lot of pressure on them, but I think that we are the ones that have to pave the way to enable them to, to realize that, that vision. Adam Russell Taylor, thank you so much for walking the talk and doing it in such a, a way that inspires the rest of us to invest ourselves a little more in a better America, whether we do it from a faith perspective or not. We are all Americans, and we're all in this together, and we can build a beloved community. 
congratulations on your book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Thank you. An Icelandic journalist tells us how his small country has helped shape the world for the better for centuries. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Tiny Iceland punches way above its weight on the world stage. Even with a population of much less than half a million people, it's been quietly altering the globe for centuries, at least according to Icelandic journalist Eagle Bjarnason in his book How Iceland Changed the World, The Big History of a Small Island. His book takes readers on a fascinating tour of Iceland's history and its surprisingly important role in events as diverse as the French Revolution, the moon landing, and the foundation of Israel. Eagle joins us today from Reykjavik to talk about Iceland's outsized influence on the world. Eagle, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. What's new in Iceland these days? I, I hear you have a, another volcano erupting. We do. We do have that volcano. It started on a Friday night in, in February as a really small eruption and, you know, just has been going and going and going. But the, the activity does fluctuate a bit, but it's by far the the most popular site right now, not just by tourists, but also by Icelanders. I think everyone... Check out the volcano. Check out the volcano. And you know what's really unique about this volcano is the proximity to Reykjavik. It's just about an hour drive from the capital. So there's there's a new hotspot in Reykjavik. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, everybody in the United States, it seems a buzz about how Iceland has uh, been handling the pandemic, uh, COVID, and for travelers and everything. How is it right now for for travelers uh, who are dreaming about going to Iceland? I I think you're right that Iceland has weathered the pandemic better than many other countries. And a part of it is a testimony to our small size. But we were also lucky early on that we we were doing testing a lot. So really early on in the pandemic, we were kind of capable of taking control. And I think they tested about... 40% 40% of the population or something like that. It was r- wow. super high number just within a couple of months. Eagle, in Iceland, is there the political dimension of the discussion in the United States? It's, you know, wearing a mask and getting a vaccination is actually a, a political thing. Is is there a, a bit of that in Iceland also? No, that has not. The, the vaccination as a debate has not entered the political spectrum there we have about a 90% vaccination rate. So that's, we just had parliamentary elections and the pandemic or the vaccinations, none of that was really part of the political discussion. Wow. So, you know, that's, that's good for tourism. Tourism is an important part of your economy. And if people are confident that the country is safe and people are getting their vaccinations, it's better for business. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's sort of part of the reason that some people get vaccinated. They They want to get the economy going again. They want to get people, um, jobless people back to work again. And you're also, it's a small community. So not getting vaccinated is a reckless thing towards other people. So when when you're in a small community and you, I think you'd kind of tend to take more responsibility uh, towards other folks around you because you might, otherwise you might infect them. But the the economic factor probably plays some part. And then it was, the reason that we were kind of confident of opening up the borders and having people come in again. Of course, we've had breakthrough cases. We're dealing with all of that. But because of the high vaccination rates, it's been a lot easier to keep it under control. Yeah. You know, you say it's a small a small community. It actually takes small community to uh, 
amazing heights as, I mean, almost everybody is related uh, sooner or later in Iceland. Uh, I mean, don't you have a lot of incest jokes in your country? Oh, absolutely. We even have an app, and the anti-incest app, which has <laughs> kind of created as a joke. But um, what we... You go out on a date and you want to know, are you second cousins or third cousins? Of course you do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Eagle Bjarnson about incest in Iceland. No, we're talking about his new book. It's How Iceland Changed the World, The Big History of a Small Island. Eagle, I love that there's a quote by one of your prime ministers. The population of Iceland is a thousand times smaller than the United States. We do not hide behind our apparent lack of superpower status. What we lack in manpower, we make up for in volcanoes. But we are still figuring out how to aim our volcanoes. That's kind of a, it's a joke, but it, it makes a little bit of sense because Iceland has figured out how to play a big role in, in history. And that's what your book is based on, isn't it? It probably makes people like you who love to travel a little scared because, you know, our volcanoes, they have and, and they can, uh, you know, they can stop, stop things. things. And uh, as we learned a couple of years ago, uh, when the volcano blew and airplanes couldn't come and go, you know, Igo, you were um, in your book, you talk about how an Icelander discovered America 500 years before Columbus. Yeah. So in the book, I built up on a so-called the sagas of the Greenlanders, which chronicles the Icelanders who took this sort of week-long voyage over to Greenland and settled a, a green part of Greenland. They gave the country this favorable name. And of course, if you are at the edge of the vault map at the time, you want to see what's beyond. And that's what they did. They sailed all the way over to you know, modern-day Canada and we have archaeological remains that prove that the Vikings were there around the year 1000, so 500 years before. So 500 years before Columbus, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, you even have the name of the ex of a woman that you talk about in your book, Gudrid? Gudrid Thorbjarnardóttir. And her saga is one of the oldest saga available in Iceland. So it's only written about uh, three generations apart from her lifetime. Of course... It should not be treated as facts, but more like uh, entertainment. But in the case of the sagas of the Greenlanders, we have a lot that supports those particular sagas. Yeah. Eagle, in your book, you write about how Iceland actually played a role in the French Revolution. Yeah, and that, that brings us back to the volcanoes. Uh, we, we like to say when we drive the ring road, which is this loop around the country, and once you're on the southern tip, you drive through this really big field of lava. It's moss-grown, and it's from the 18th century. And we like to point at it and say, this is where the French Revolution started. And people wonder what we mean by that, but there was a really big eruption, like one in a thousand year eruption that happened um, five years before the French Revolution. And it caused an enormous climate change over Europe and even beyond. It affected the monsoon rain and it was believed to be the cause of a famine in Egypt that wiped out one-fifth of its population. A lot of people in England died that year from uh, volcanic poisoning. Huh. So this is amazing. A volcano blows up in, in Iceland in the late 1700s. It hurts agriculture in France. The peasants don't have enough food and they get mad at the king and the queen. That's exactly that. That is, in a way, the sort of simple version of it. Of course, reality is is more 
No, but I'd like the fact that Iceland has a volcano. The peasants go out to Versailles. The queen says, let them eat cake. They drag the king and the queen into town, cut off their heads, and liberty, equality, fraternity, we're all free. Thank you, Iceland. You're welcome. And that's what we, next time you think, when, you, when you're thankful for living in a democratic society, you should really think of us and, you know, think of this and volcano. And think of the volcanoes. Every and time a volcano it's... blows, we should wave our flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, um, also World War II was a, a huge thing in Iceland. I understand before World War II, there were very few modern buildings even. I mean, uh, and after World War II, Iceland becomes connected with the rest of the world. Um, how did Iceland impact World War II? It, World War II was probably one of the greatest changes Iceland has ever seen over a span of a couple of years. Not because there was any kind of combat in Iceland, but just because suddenly Iceland mattered for the rest of the world. Iceland was this fort in the middle of the North Atlantic, which was really strategic to keep hold of shipping routes. So Iceland was this really important base. And first it was invaded by the Brits, and then the U.S. Army took over. And this was the equivalent of having 55 million foreign soldiers in the United States in, in ratio to the population at the time. So 10 or 20,000 troops would have been a lot of people back then. It was a lot. You know, oh, my goodness. You can Huge change for Iceland. Everyone stopped doing what they were doing. You know, farmers could not get anyone to work on their farm anymore. Everyone was yeah. working to build barracks, to build roads, to build bridges, to build airports. All of that was needed in Iceland. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Igor Bjarnason. His book is How Iceland Changed the World. And we've talked about Icelanders discovering America five centuries before Columbus. Talked about how a volcano, you could argue, triggered the French Revolution. Uh, we've talked about how World War II brought Iceland just into the modern world. And, Eagle, you also write about how uh, Iceland was related to the birth of Israel. Yeah. In the book, I argue that Iceland, in fact, had a, a big impact on the birth of Israel by being this small nation at the time that had just joined the United Nations. It had just received its independence. It had been neutral in the Second World War, so it didn't really have many enemies. And it became this sort of default country to take over this question of Palestine in a committee in the UN. And hmm. the man uh, tasked with this really enormous uh, question, uh, he, he was the son of an immigrant and he, his family had been a victim of, in a way, prejudice against Jewish people, even though they weren't, but uh, they were kind of branded as Jews in a way. Um, so he was more sympathetic to their cause than many other people at the time would have been, in, in Iceland at least. So he, he made... And he was in a committee, a delegate from Iceland, that, that really was a, a key vote on this committee. Yes. There were other people that were meant to deliver the case or the verdict of the committee, the conclusion that they would vote on. But they both kind of uh, had to go home, certainly, be before it was put to vote because, you know, they didn't want to touch the situation. Uh, so this guy, uh, Tor... He went to the podium of the United Nations and, and delivered this sort of really strong speech about how they mm. should divide up Palestine. And then it was put to vote and, and passed wow. later on. So Iceland had a big influence on that 
decision back in the late 1940s. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was all kind of diplomatic within the United Nations. So you can't say, you know, Iceland, Iceland did decide this yeah. themselves, but they did in a way alter the decision in, in this direction because it was a really small window in history that a resolution like this would have passed. Journalist Eagle Bjarnason is joining us now from Iceland on Travel with Rick Steves as we look at the oversized impact of his small island nation. Eagle's book is called How Iceland Changed the World, The Big Story of a Small Island. You might also see his byline on articles in National Geographic, Lonely Planet, and The New York Times. There's more with Eagle about the genealogy-based dating apps they've developed in Iceland. That's in a short extra to this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Eagle, you also write about how Iceland even had an impact on the moon landing back in uh, 1969. So before NASA was able to reach the moon, they didn't really know what to expect. They had only had pictures of the moon. And the moon looked like Iceland. It looked desolated, like the central part of Iceland. So they figured the best thing to do would be to send all the astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, to the center of Iceland to have them practice for the moon landing. And they lived there in the kind of middle of nowhere in Iceland. The fact that nine of the first 12 astronauts to step on the moon came to Iceland first is a little known fact about our impact on the moon landing. So Iceland is as close to the moon as you can get without leaving the the, the terra firma of this planet. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, that's yeah. a lot cheaper. And then uh, in, in the same era, during that period, the Cold War was going on, and, and Iceland, of course, gradually became a base for the U.S. military in the sort of the, the wake of World War II. But it's just international dialogue. People go to Reykjavik. Even Bobby Fischer, the famous chess champion, you know, fought Boris Spassky on the chessboard. Where? In Iceland. How is it that Iceland became this place for the superpowers to meet? I think, in, in a way, Iceland's position is what has given its outsized influence. It's, it's been between, you know, North America and Europe, North America and the Soviet Union, you know, maybe in the future it would be between Europe and the China as the Arctic shipping routes open up. And it's it's been a neutral nation, a small nation, and never had an army. So it has hosted a lot of these diplomatic meetings and, you know, the famous chess mats of Bobby Fischer and Spassky, where, you know, the, the Americans who people said knew nothing about chess were up against the Soviets chest machine and it was it this was an event that was on screen at every bar in the u.s at the time it was, ah, it was yeah. huge it was a big deal really from big iceland deal. from little iceland yeah and you know iceland had one of the very first elected women presidents uh, vigdis finbogadotter and she's quite a character tell us a little bit about this this woman who was such a groundbreaker in in politics I actually just spoke with her quite recently. She's, she's 93, and she was a theater director at the time when she ran for office. And uh, when people came to her and, and said, you know, we, we want a female candidate, and we think you are the person. And she sort of thought about it overnight and said, okay, even though this was a totally groundbreaking decision. And it turned out that she was the first woman ever to get elected as head of state in a direct vote. And 
the world had to wait another 10 years for it to happen uh, for the second mm. time. And I, in a way, I think it kind of captures the Icelandic character in some way that we are few. So if someone comes to you and asks for something, it's really hard to just kind of roll the responsibility over to someone else. You just kind of, yeah, take it on and give it your best. And yeah, if you fail, it's not the end of the world. Uh, people for, are kind of forgiving of mistakes here. So in a way, I, I always find her character to speak well to the to the national mood. You know, Eagle, Iceland has, has been a early adopter in setting an example for attempting some of the um, the more modern ways of living uh, in our in our modern world, what social values and and societal norms that wouldn't be normal outside of Iceland are you proud of? What is there where Iceland is way ahead of uh, so many other nations in what you think is important for for society? What I'm most proud of about Iceland is how serious we are about equality we want to give everyone equal rights and that especially applies to gender equality and it's been an issue that has had a lot of force for the past 40 years and perhaps more force for the past 10 years than ever and we just had parliamentary elections recently and there were 48 percent of new lawmakers or the lawmakers are women so it was almost equal and uh, we've been ranked uh, you know most gender equal country in the world mm. for 12 years uh, running i think of course there's still a lot that needs to be done but because we've introduced a lot of these progressive policies that are aimed at, at gender equality that have worked and we've proven them to work um, i think iceland in a way has a lot of power on the world states when it comes to these policies and it's people look to it and ask how did you do it and and Iceland is able to say well we did this and then we did this and then we did this and this and even if they just take a few of the policies that still changes a lot for a lot of people yeah well this whole um, gender equality is something that the world is changing rapidly but not rapidly enough and if Iceland is changing the world and punching above its weight Boy, that's something to certainly be proud of. Eagle Bjarnson, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for writing How Iceland Changed the World. Thanks a lot for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Kazmura Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out when other radio stations air travel with Rick Steves. You can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe. My favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is Four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.